Tukiswaki Bible Church. For those of us who haven't been around, we're past the halfway mark in our series today on the book of Ephesians. And we'll be crossing the threshold from looking at who we are in Christ to how we live that out. Paul's described for us how we are together blessed, and that he prays for us, he's reminded us that he prays for us, that we would know that we are together bound. He has assured us of that based on the fact that we are together alive and have been brought together near. And then went as far as telling us that we are together heirs, which caused him to actually pray that we would know just how much we are together loved. He's laid out for us who we are in Christ, both now and for eternity. But at this point in the letter, Paul is going to turn from describing who we are in Christ to how we ought to live. One of the key pictures Paul's used so far has been up to this point that we have been raised from death to life. And more than just raised, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We sit with him. We have a seat there. But now for this next section of the letter, he's going to turn from looking and telling us of where we have this seat to calling us to walk accordingly. From sitting with Christ to walking with him. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Ephesians chapter 4 as we look at verses 1 to 16. Again, we'll be looking at Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 16 and you can follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature 
of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before we come to consider these verses and what they have to say to us today, I want to ask, Lord, that you would use this time in your word to unify us by your spirit around your son as your people that the unity found in christ and made possible by christ and established in christ would be a unity kbc is known for and a unity that we know despite all the apparent obstacles that stand in its way because we know jesus in whose name we pray amen Ever wonder what life is about this side of the cross? Ever wonder that? Ever wonder what life is about this side of the cross? We talk so much sometimes in our circles of what Christ accomplished on our behalf that there's rarely enough time to consider sometimes what's left for us to accomplish on behalf of him. And yet, this is a question that seems to rattle around in the minds of every Christian. What can I do for Jesus? What am I supposed to do? What is there left to do after all Christ has done for me? There's a book on my shelf, the title of which is quite well known, even if the contents of that book are no longer known. It's called, How Then shall we live it's a title that's been reused in a number of different circumstances and in a number of different situations how then shall we live ever wonder that how then shall we live well in our passage today and in fact for the rest of this letter paul is going to tell us just that it's not the only place in the bible that an answer is given to this question but it's certainly, arguably, one of the most poignant. Because for three chapters now, Paul has laid out who we are in Christ. And upon that foundation now, he can lay out what we are to do for him. What we are to do in response to what he's done for us. How then shall we live? And the heart of that, the beginning of that, what Paul, where Paul lays the first layer of that down is found here in our passage today where Paul is going to first answer this question like a father and then turn to answer it like a mother. Now, I don't know how it works in your household, but in our household, if you want a rather ethereal 
rather theologically robust answer for why you should be doing what you're doing or what you should be doing for that matter at all, you come to dad. Now, dad's not very good at getting practical. He just sort of throws you into it and expects you to get on. But if you want to come then and figure out how you uniquely fit into this story that we're writing as a family or that we're a part of as a bigger family, then you go to mom because mom knows how to get practical. And Paul is going to do both. He's going to answer it first like a father and then turn to answer it again like a mother. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. How then shall we live? First, let's look at how Paul answers like a father. Tell us, Pops, how then shall we live? Well, Paul says in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. Just like dad, right? You want to know how to live? Live like me, a prisoner for the Lord. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the call. Now, elsewhere, Paul talks of God's people being called out of darkness and into light, where our call refers to that moment that we transition from doing things my way to doing things God's way, because we've come out from under our own reign and into God's, into the reign of his Son. But in Ephesians, the purview of this call is a bit more specific. In Ephesians, we're not just called for some, from something bad into something good. We're called from something now into something not yet. Our call has to do with more than just what God's done for us in the past. It has to do with what God's still going to do for us in the future. It's as Paul says back in chapter 1, it is a hope to which we are called. So Paul says here, if you're wondering how then shall we live or what's left for us to do after all Jesus has done for us, he says walk worthy of where you're going. That's the call to which we've been called, the hope. Reflect tomorrow in your life today, which really reiterates what we've already seen and what Paul's already alluded to in chapter 2. Do you remember? Back there, Paul used this walking language for the first time. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, such that having been saved by grace, he says, we are God's workmanship, his poem." Created in Christ Jesus, he says, for good works, which I argued back then when we looked, are not the works left for us to do for God, but the works left for God to do for us, because this is a a future thing. And yet, as they are God's works that God's going to do, it's still works that Paul calls us to walk in. He says that while not ours, we should nonetheless walk in them. How then shall we live? Paul says, both in chapter 2 and here, walk in a manner worthy of the call. Reflect in your life today not only what God has done for you in the past, but what he will finish for you in the future. 
My favorite quote from a film is from the movie Gladiator. I don't know how appropriate that is to mention, but that is my favorite film. I like historical fiction. That one ranks the highest in my book as far as films go. One of my favorite quotes, though, is in that movie when Maximus, the main character who ends up being the gladiator, which the film is about, where Maximus, prior to being a gladiator, is a general, a highest general in the Roman army. And before the battle, the last battle that he will fight with his, with his legions of Roman soldiers, he calls to them, and his rally cry is, men, remember, what you do in life echoes in eternity. What you do in life echoes in eternity. But Paul has actually turned it around, hasn't he? Paul says, remember, what we do in life ought to reflect the eternity we're headed for. It's like Cinderella after the ball. She's still living in the same house with the same wicked stepsisters and the same wicked stepmother doing the same old mundane chores. But there's a sense in which she can never do them the same again because she's been chosen. She's met her prince. And she doesn't know how, and at times it may even seem that it's never going to happen, but she knows somewhere deep inside that someday her prince will find her. That her prince has to find her. So that in her today, you can see a reflection not only of her yesterday, but of her someday tomorrow. You want to know what it's like to be a mother this side of the cross, doing the same old mundane chores, one more dish to wash, one more diaper to change, one more dirty floor to mop. Do it like Cinderella after the ball. Because someday your prince will find you. But how different would the story be if when the prince finally showed up, Cinderella had already given up hope, started drinking her life away, or numbing the pain by binge-watching Netflix? That would be a different story, right? If you want to know what it's like, what you ought to do today in light of what Jesus has done before, reflect your tomorrow in what's left for you to do. Paul says, walk worthy of the hope or the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, he says, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Because remember, this isn't just about us individually. It's about us together that we would be together united. That's the call. That in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility between us and God and between us and each other has been broken down. So we're to reflect what God's already done and what God's gonna do someday in our lives today. And one of the most practical ways to do that is by bearing with one another in love. Putting up with one another. 
Remember from a couple weeks ago that the church is about God making a statement to God's enemies, that God wasn't as foolish as they made God out to be. Not as foolish in creating the world and not as foolish in attempting to redeem it. So bear with one another in love, knowing that God is making a statement through God's people. It's a different statement if we're not getting along, if we're not bearing with one another, if we don't understand that we're not at the end yet. It's a different statement. But God is making a statement through God's people. But believe me, Paul's right when he says it's going to take a lot of humility, a lot of gentleness, and a whole lot of patience. It takes humility. Because we need to remember that when we're bearing with others, they're bearing with us as well. And God's already born with us so much. It takes gentleness because we ought to give what we want to get and what we've already gotten. And Lord knows the law doesn't work, not in marriage, not in parenting, not in ultimately getting us to Jesus. It has to always be coupled with and always be encased in the gospel, always in grace. There's real consequences, no doubt, for those who choose not to live under grace, whether in their relationships or under your roof at home. There's real consequences. But the law is always encased in gospel. Grace is always extended. That's gentleness and patience. Because, thank goodness, the story's not done. Not when I'm bearing with you, and not when you're bearing with me. The story's not done. If you're here today with somebody you live under the same roof with, turn to that person and say to them, thank goodness, the story's not done. Go ahead, do it. And now, now and say to yourself, patience, patience, the story's not done. Say that to you. The story's not done. Paul says, you want to know how then shall we live? Walk worthy of the call, bearing with one another in love, being eager, he says in verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does it mean to walk worthy? Be eager, be zealous, be singularly concerned to maintain the unity of the of the Spirit. Not unity at all cost or unity as the end, but the unity that is the result of all God has already done in Jesus and what he's already established by his Spirit. Be eager to maintain that, to reflect in your life today what God accomplished in the past and what he'll finish in the future. Now, here's Paul like a dad. When you want him to get most practical, Paul turns and gets most theological. So he grounds all of what he's saying, just like I would do with our kids if they come to me for questions. He grounds all of what he's saying that how then shall we live is essentially about living out the unity God has already secured in Christ by the Spirit. He grounds that in seven theological affirmations. And that's a good number. I would do that. I was Paul, just like a good dad. Seven theological affirmations. You see them there? 
He says, you want to know why what we're left to do is essentially about unity? Because first, there's one body. Second, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's not two bodies. There's not two people of God. There's one people of God. There's not two spirits. There's one, just as there is one hope that this story is headed to. There is one Lord. Number four, he says. And five, one faith and one baptism, which means we all come into this thing by the same road. Baptism is what you call a metonym. It's part of the process that is often used to stand for the whole. So you're not saved by baptism as if that is, but that's the culmination, and that's, that's, that's part of the process, right? The one baptism, it's sort of like the dentist chair. The dentist chair does not fix anything, right? But you all, everybody sits, whether rich or poor, whether mom or dad, whether good or bad, everybody who needs to get their teeth fixed sits in the dentist chair, one chair. And then the dentist gives you one shot and everybody gets drilled with one drill. <laughs> That's what baptism is. Everybody comes in through one way. And then there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul answers the question, how then shall we live first like a dad? <laughs> Talks more about the perspective that we're supposed to have, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit than the specifics we're supposed to be about. And then he grounds the whole thing in seven theological affirmations. But Paul's not content to leave the matter with such a general explanation. Good, that's good. He turns then to answer this question like a mom. To tell us not only of the mentality that we should have in tackling life and then throwing us into it, but also of the unique role each of us plays as an individual. Doesn't that sound like a mom? You're so unique. You play such a unique role in this thing. Go Paul for putting on his mom. Well, here Paul speaks on both sides. He turns from the corporate call to unity to considering our individual uniqueness in the story. He says in verse 7, By grace, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The last time Paul talked about a grace given according to, in that case, God's gift, was when he was trailing off in chapter 3 to talk of his own part in this story. Do you remember? A grace given to Paul, that he would be the apostle to the Gentiles. But here, he's not just talking about himself anymore. He's talking about all of us. As much as Paul had a place in this story, all of us have a grace, a particular grace that's been given to us, each to steward. God, grace has been given to each one of us. And this is important. Because amidst 
Paul's general call to unity and the eagerness we're supposed to share in maintaining that, he says we carry that out according to how we've been uniquely gifted by Jesus. Grace has been given to each one of us. And Paul supports this with a quotation, maybe slipping back into dad mode. He says in verse 8, Therefore, it says, when, we, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Quote is generally thought to be taken from Psalm 68, 18. That's probably the footnote in your Bible if you look at it. Psalm 68, Did I lose it? Is it back? 68, 18. But there, if you're familiar with this psalm, the picture being painted is not of Jesus, but apparently of God. It's a picture of God triumphing over God's enemies and leading captive captivity. That's what it says. Leading captive captivity. And then God, back on God's mountain, receiving God's spoil. That's the picture in Psalm 68. God doing what God does best, triumphing over God's enemies, and then getting all that God deserves. Here in Ephesians, though, Paul makes the point that God's triumph over God's enemies was in fact accomplished. All that the psalmist in Psalm 65 was writing about is finally accomplished in the ascension of Christ. Everybody say that with me. Ascension. Ascension. Now, I know some of you know that term. For others, maybe you don't. That's when Jesus ascended back to the Father. He went back, his ascension. And it wasn't just his return home. It was his enthronement up. Jesus went away and proved his right to the throne and now sits at the right hand of the Father. His ascension. Everybody say it with me. His ascension. And this is where Paul says God finally accomplished God's defeating of God's enemy. Now some of you know that. But after dying on the cross, Jesus rose from the dead. And he ascended back to the Father. And that's the point that Paul says he triumphed over every power in the heavenly places. Says it even here, that he, he is the type of conquering king, though, that in his triumph over his enemies, he is not just a king who takes what is rightfully his, but then gives grace, gives gifts to his people. You're gifted if you've put your trust in Jesus because of the ascension of Jesus. He gave gifts. He gave gifts. And Paul explains that in verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. The king came down to do what only the king could. And isn't it interesting that for all of human history, God's been coming down. Does anybody remember the first time God came down? He came down in creation to make humanity. It's the way the story goes. 
When's the next time? He came down at the fall when we messed everything up. Even then, it was for grace. Even then, kicking us out of the garden was for grace. That we wouldn't live forever in the messed up situation we created. He came down eventually to the mountain to meet Moses. And ultimately came down in the person of Jesus. But he came down, Paul says, that he would go back up. That he is also, Paul says, the one who ascended far above all the heavens and all the powers in the heavens. That he might fill, Paul says, all things. Which is how the diversity of our gifts relates to the unity of our body. Do you remember Paul prayed? Do you remember what Paul prayed back in chapter 1? He prayed that we would know, that we would know where we're headed, that it'll be worth it when we get there, and that no matter what stands in our way, God's going to get us there in the end. And to assure us of that, he pointed to Jesus. He said, look to Jesus, who God already raised from the dead and seated on high. That same power is at work in you. That same power is at work in you. He seated him on high. But why, Paul says, why did he seat him on high? He sat them there because he would put all things and gave him all things over all things so that he is the head and then gave him to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when Paul says now in chapter 4 that Christ descended and defeated death and ascended so that he might fill all in all, he does that in the church and by the grace and the gifts that each of us have been given are to be used for that end. That's why you are who you are. That's why God wired you the way you are. That's why God gave you your personality and redeemed you for himself so that you would be part of the process of Jesus filling everything so that Jesus, that God through Jesus would recreate this world, make one new man in place of the two so that Jesus would be the beginning of a new world. I love that moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when on the run from the white witch, the four children who found themselves in this land called Narnia, because all roads lead back to Narnia, these four children on the way, on the run from this witch, they hear behind them what they think is the sound of a sledge. And then they throw themselves over the crest of a hill because they think that the sound they hear of this sledge is none other than the sledge of the white witch. But in that moment, when that sound draws nearer, they find that it's not the sledge of the white witch. It's the sleigh of Father Christmas. And that matters because Narnia was a land where it was always winter and never Christmas. So when Father Christmas shows up, it says something is changing. Father Christmas does like 
Father Christmas should, he gives them gifts on behalf of the lion. You know the story? He gives them gifts. But what does he say to them? He says, children, these are tools, not toys. These are to be used for the good of the one who gave them. You have been made uniquely, uniquely, for the purpose for which God made you to be a part of this body uniquely. But who you are and the grace that's been given to you is meant to be used for the one who gave it. This is what Paul says, that grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure that belongs to Christ and is Christ's to give. But they're to be used then for the sake of Christ. They're tools, not toys. And he names a few for good measure. He, he, he says in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. But his point here is not that these are the only gifts, though sometimes we think they are, but that he gave us these to equip the saints, he says, for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Yes, we are a church built on the witness of the apostles. We are a church encouraged by the prophets. We are a church inspired by the evangelists, guarded by the shepherds, strengthened by the teachers. But we are a church in which the diversity of the church is therefore equipped to do the diversity of the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, which is extremely fitting for us today. Because this word here, ministry, once again, as Paul's throwing it out there, is diakonos, deacon, the deaconate. So that as much as we're asking these four guys who came forward today and asking all of us to do the work of the ministry, and these four particularly to alleviate some of the pressures surrounding our shepherds so that they can do their part in the ministry. It's not just busy work. If it's ever busy work, let's just get rid of it. We don't need to do that. We're asking them to lead out in the work, the deaconate of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. Until, Paul says, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, he says. To mature manhood, he says. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, he says. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather... Speaking the truth in love, all of us, we are to grow up in every way, he says, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, he says, when each part is working properly, to do just that, we all, each part, is meant to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I want to latch on to these, the phrase in these verses, especially in verse 15. Speaking the truth 
in love. This is how we grow. It's what Paul's saying. And this is the heart of the work of the ministry. Not just as apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds do the work of equipping, but as the body builds itself up in love. And so before we close, I, wanna, I want you to think for a second. What am I doing? What part am I playing in building up the body in love? Which isn't just a question of how you're loving on others, but about how you're speaking to them. It's always accompanied by words. Now, some of us are better with words than others, but it's always accompanied with words. What opportunities am I taking to speak into the lives of those around me? Because as different as we are, as diverse as we are, this is how our diversity serves our unity. When we speak out of our unique perspectives, out of our unique personalities, out of our unique pasts, out of our unique positions in this world, and not just generally, but specifically, speaking the truth. We were hanging out with someone yesterday, and they were sharing a bit of their story. It was an incredible story. But the one who was sharing it with me was almost sharing it apologetically, as if it's a problem, the, 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 the path that God's brought you on. And all I could do is sit there and say, I cannot believe how well God has equipped this person to speak into a sphere of our world that I have no right speaking into. At least not in that sense. God has gifted you uniquely to be a part of this plan to speak the truth in love and therefore join in the process of building up the body in love. Paul's already talked about the truth when he said back in chapter 1, in him, you also, us, here, now, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what part are you playing in the building up of the body by speaking the truth, the gospel of your salvation in love? Christ accomplished a great work on our behalf so that when we turn to ask what's left for us to do for him after all that he's already done for us, the heart of that laid out in this passage is rather simple. From the perspective of a dad, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And from the perspective of a mom, do that by telling others and telling each other from your own unique perspective and personality, and past, and position, in your own unique way, out of your own unique giftedness, of all Jesus has already done. And in this way, we will be, and grow to be, together, 
united. Let me leave you then with a few reminders. First, as you go, remember that we have a lot in common, you and I, you and the one next to you, you and the one on the other side, north side, south side, a lot in common. You have a lot in common. And that's despite all the appearances or whether anyone in here would walk into this room and say, what are all these people doing in the same room together? We have one body. We have one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. That's a lot in common. But we also have in common where we came from and how we've got where we are today. And so we should also have in common how we treat one another with humility and gentleness, bearing with one another. Turn to the person next to you. Thank goodness it's not over. Patience. Patience. We ought to have a lot in common, and we do. But remember, second, that the unity of the Spirit is precisely that. As we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, it is precisely that. It is the unity of the Spirit. We don't get to choose what we're unified around or choose what we want to be unified around. This is about Jesus. And in a world, and especially our nation, where we've given up the language of unity. Have you noticed that? You can track that on Google. We've given up the language of unity, and instead we've embraced diversity as if all of a sudden the one isn't supposed to serve the other. In our nation, in our world today, we would do well to remember that this is all about Jesus. And this is about the work God's already begun, like only God can, to make us into what we were meant to be, by his Spirit. So if anyone in the name of unity, or in the name of tolerance, or in the name of whatever they want to name it, tries to make unity, calls you to a unity around something other than Jesus, that's the time you dig your heel in the sand, you draw the line. Because without Jesus, we don't have anything. Your kids decide to walk away from the faith. Your parents refuse to bow the knee, draw the line. It doesn't mean you stop loving them. It doesn't mean you stop engaging them or speaking the truth in love to them. It doesn't mean you stop holding out grace before them, but if Jesus is who Jesus says he is, it means you never look for unity apart from him or apart from his spirit. And lastly, let me remind you then, as you're remembering all this other stuff, let me remind you then that as much as we're to be about the business of building the church by speaking the truth in love, God has done and is doing more in that regard than ever you and I ever will. We were able to conform, confirm four men today to bear the load of this church. Not only qualified, which it is that, but also those who have agreed 
to focus a section of their life to this church and what we could be together. We were able to confirm four men today. But this also comes today with another announcement. This is our, as one of the elders, our letting you know of that. This also comes today as we're going to let you in on a conversation, another conversation that we've been having. For a few months now, since I got here really, and even a little before that, we've been considering as elders and talking with and in conversation with Chris Hudson as he's submitted an application for eldership. And we've walked, and you've entrusted that process to us, and we've done the best we can and talked as best we can so that we're not coming up here haphazardly and saying this is something we should think about as a body. But today we are presenting him before you and saying that we've done our part and gone as far as we think we can go, the four of us, Jim and Jeff and Ted and I. We've had the conversation, and we've looked Chris's life and what he's done in this church, and this conversation has a much longer history than that. But today we're presenting for consideration Chris Hudson as an elder, and we're going to do it like we did the deacons. We're going to take two weeks and we're going to consider this because we don't claim to have omniscient eyes, and we are asking this that if we affirm this as a body, it's precisely that. It's an affirmation of this as a body. This is body life. But for two weeks, we're going to ask you, if it's something personal, go to Chris. Go to Chris personally. Go to Chris and Amber together. Take care of that. We don't want to move ahead with baggage. We want to move ahead with strength in the unity of the Spirit. Good passage for it. Not alone that God is gifting us again with another man. We want to move ahead in strength. If you have questions or concerns, come to us. Come to one of the elders. I'll be around. Catherine, we didn't talk about this. Catherine's going to go pick up the kids today. I'll be around. Come to us. Come to me. Come to Ted. Come to Jeff. Come to Jim as soon as he gets back from California. All that sun. Come to us, though, because in two weeks' time, if the Lord so allows, we'll affirm Chris Hudson as an elder but that's going to be us as a body doing it. And so, I think I've done all my notes. As you do that, though, remember. Remember. Remember that this is what we're to be about. Remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. And if you're asking, how then shall we live? What might I do on his behalf in light of that? Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And it's of the Spirit. But do that knowing that God is doing much more besides. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing over us as a congregation. Your blessing in Jesus. That we would know more and more the love you have for us. And the love that you have had for us. And the love that you will have for us forevermore. I pray that as we continue to look at this letter to the Ephesians, that we would grow more and more together united for our good, for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Thank you for joining us. 
For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.